want to begin by um, thanking Anya for the pra- rapid promotion to parish priest. <laughs> um, uh, it, it doesn't come with a great salary uptake, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm a curate there in Roscommon Town, so uh, Father Eugene might not be thrilled if uh, if I um, uh, usurped his authority, as it were. Um, I want to bring my phone with me simply because I like to record this um, and sometimes I put out a, a podcast and it's nice to put out stuff like this where you get a chance maybe to stretch our legs a little bit more maybe than Sunday Mass. Um, so I want to begin, I gave you out a little sheet there and uh, on it on one side is the Veni Creator Spiritus which many of you will recognise and on the other side is the sequence for Pentecost. Right? The sequence might be something that you're not maybe familiar with, it's there are six or seven of them in the church's year, and they're like little, little um, uh, um, threads that knit together the liturgical year. Um, they're not scriptural. They're part of the church's tradition of prayer, I think. And um, So I, I'm going to sing a version of it for you that was taught to us in the seminary. Um, so it's an irregular tune, so you're probably not going to be able to pick it up on one verse and continue it on, but maybe you might get it at some point. But it goes like this. Holy Spirit, Lord of light, from the clear celestial height, thy pure beaming radiance give. Come, thou Father of the poor, come with treasures which endure, come, thou light of all that live. Thou of all consolers best, thou the soul's delightful guest, Dost refreshing peace bestow. Thou in toil art comfort sweet, Pleasant coolness in the heat, Solace in the midst of woe. Light immortal, light divine, Visit thou these hearts of thine, And our inmost being filled. If thou take thy grace away, nothing pure in us will stay. All our good is turned to ill. Heal our wounds, our strength renew. On our dryness pour thy dew. Wash the stains of guilt away. Bend the stubborn heart and will. Melt the frozen, warm the chill, guide the steps that go astray. Thou on us who evermore, thee confess and thee adore, with thy sevenfold gifts descend. Give us comfort when we die, give us life with thee on high. Grant us joys that never end. I could blame Paul Keogh in two distinct ways that I'm in front of you. One is the very direct invitation that I got there recently to come down here and speak with you this evening. And the second way, actually, believe it or not, was that maybe in a far more deep way, Paul invited me many years ago when I was about 15 to come along to a prayer meeting 
And in many ways, that prayer meeting was the start of where now I end up standing here collared and uh, all of that. Um, so uh, thanks, Paul, for all that you've done. <laughs> I want to set the scene for you for a moment. Um, I promise I won't stay with the doom and gloom of our world or where we're at at the moment. But I think it's, it's very important. You know, we sang it there, here in this time, here in this place. It's good to, you know, face concretely where we are at as church and as society and as world. So last July, it's just a starting point, don't think of it in any way too seriously, but you'll remember the Taoiseach speaking in the doll at length about the church in the wake of all of the new revelations, it seemed, of a diocese here. And he accused the Vatican of undue interference in Irish affairs. And then following that, that watershed moment, it seemed anyway, the Minister for Foreign Affairs closed the residence of the Irish ambassador to the Holy See. And he claimed that it was for financial reasons, although the saving of about 700,000 a year doesn't seem to stack up. But having said that, if he did close it for financial reasons, then fine. If it was genuinely for that, then I would accept it. But I don't really believe that it was for that reason. I think it was closed because... We live at a time when it was politically expedient. It was sort of the right time, if you like, not maybe from an internal church perspective, but from outside. It seemed to be the right time to do something like this. And yet at the same time, we're not in Soviet Russia or communist China, so we have to be very real about where we are and not where we're not. And we're not being killed off, murdered as it were, by ruling elites for some political reason. But you could say that what's happening to the church here is a form of politicide, is the technical term for it. Another example of that, maybe to give you a sense, would be what happened to apartheid in South Africa maybe nearly 20 years ago now, maybe just over 20 years ago. And that was a form where a political system was just shifted along and changed. It's a form of politicide because the church has held political power in three areas. The area of health, of education, and in our minds and in our hearts around sexual morality. And in many ways the church then has lost its voice, um, certainly on the area of sexual morality, for obvious reasons. The abuse crisis is obvious. And now it seems this continuing annihilation of the church in the political, cultural and social life of our country has created a vacuum, a power vacuum, where the church once was a very strong part of society. So the focus of the current politicide, if you call it that, has now shifted to the eradication of church from the area of education. And it will gradually, we can predict this, begin to focus on the area of our health system. I know it's all doom and gloom. It gets better, I promise. <laughs> Meanwhile then, from the 1960s onwards, our institutional church has been greatly depleted by the rapidly falling vocations. Not to mention, of course, the number of clergy and religious who have left that way of life. So if you were to use the analogy of the military, and it's not a bad one because sometimes we can feel so harassed that we feel like soldiers in the trenches maybe, 
But then the standing army, in a sense, that the bishops and the superiors in religious life had, that they were generals of, if you will, that standing army no longer exists. And there's a kind of a skeleton crew on duty, taking turns of keeping watch, hoping against hope that the cavalry will come riding over the hill to relieve us. So here we are. What are we to do? We don't have enough troops, as it were. And, indeed, when we try to encourage a few lay people to get involved in the various ministries of the church, they, I think, rightfully enough, kind of go, hang on a second, I don't want to be the first out of the trenches. I don't want to be the first to put my head over the parapet for fear it'll get machine gunned off. I think it's important to tell the story like this because at times at least that's what it feels like to be a priest in Ireland today. Indeed, to be a Catholic of any level of commitment. At times it feels like being hung, drawn and quartered. But of course not physically, as I said earlier on. We're not being murdered and we're not being tortured. But rather emotionally, in our hearts, and therefore spiritually. And so we can become at sea. We don't know where we are. We have lost our identity. And we can ask questions like, has our God abandoned us to the wolves? Where is the chief pastor, the one who promised to be with us, to protect us? For faithful and committed Catholics, it can feel as though God and church have abandoned them. So how are we to chart a course forward? We have only a sketchy map and instruments that we haven't used for generations. For many of us, maybe go out into our cars, flick on the sat-nav, point it to wherever we're going and boom, we're there. It would be kind of very strange to get out a chart, not even a map, but a chart, and to get out a sextant, which would be a thing that we could look at the stars or the sun, find our direction, and gradually work our way. We don't even know how to use the instruments that are at our disposal. In a way, because even the generations before us, Catholic and all as they were, they didn't exercise them, much and all as we didn't ourselves have to pick up the map to get to Athlone this evening. So we have to recover the ancient ways, I think is the word used in the prophet Isaiah. They are to be found in the Gospels, in the letters of St. Paul and in the Acts of the Apostles. These ancient ways in turn draw deeply on the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament. First and foremost in this is that the Christian way leads all of us at some time or another to the cross. It's always good to have that in mind. And the second thing that's good to have in mind is that nobody, not even the Lord himself, volunteered for the cross. Think of that first sorrowful mystery, the agony in the garden, and the Lord sweats blood. If not 
if it isn't your will, Lord. In some way, he says to the Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So in some ways, we have to be ready to sweat blood as well. That means that when we contemplate what the future holds, we have to be real about it. We have to be here in this time, here in this place. Because being a Christian can be a very painful experience. And there's no point in hiding that from ourselves. If we're looking for a kind of virtual religion, then we're definitely in the wrong place. What happened to Jesus can, does, and will happen to us. It's one of the key weaknesses of the church. We operate in the world as if the cross never happened. And then we're surprised and saddened Some of the words go in our contemporary thinking when the world moves in a way that is not in keeping with our beliefs. And yet from the ancient ways, we know that all of this happened before. None of it is new. So what should be the focus of the church's mission now? For many years, we have been taken up. Our focus has been on upholding the church's total power, you might say, in those three areas of health, education, and sexual morality. And it's good to be clear about it. The church did hold almost total power in those three areas. So I think at least we have to propose that it's not such a good thing to hold total control over any area of public life. We look at any totalitarian system, we can see good reasons for this. That there are other viewpoints and perspectives in the world challenges us to understand ourselves more and more. To give a concrete example for today, in the field of primary school education, up until now Catholic ethos was not articulated was simply presumed. It's created a situation where the majority of our schools are Catholic in name, but somehow are not clear about what that means in identity. So isn't it ironic that there is already some good coming out of the current moves by the government and the state to question the whole question of patronage? And already some parents are beginning to articulate their desire to have their children educated in a specifically Catholic school. This is good. It gives freedom of expression to schools that are Catholic to be explicitly Catholic in their identity, outlook and ethos. So what we should be convinced of, I think, is that the church's total power in any area is not a good thing. It breeds kind of a complacency and commands all of our resources to uphold a false and total structure. But it's not the church that's being usurped, rather that totality. 
that we're coming to realise now that the church can choose the mission it is to focus on. And that mission is surely the one that Christ entrusted to his disciples, those he had gathered round him. It is the mission of evangelization. Evangelization comes from a Greek word for the good news, for the gospel, evangelion. So to be evangelized means to be gospelified, if you will. It means to be completely immersed in the gospel. In an ideal world, let's be clear, we don't live in an ideal world, but in an ideal world, evangelization would come first, before the ritual and the sacramental baptism that we've all experienced. We were all sacramentally baptized and brought into the way of Christ. The question is, were we sufficiently evangelized beforehand? Well, I wasn't, because I was baptized as a baby. Don't know about you. So we don't live in an ideal world. We live in the real world. And in the real world, sometimes the cart does go before the horse. And sometimes, maybe most of the time, our evangelization comes after baptism. Indeed, it often occurs after we've been baptized, confirmed, received Holy Communion, the sacrament of penance, and maybe, dare I say it, been ordained as a priest. So, in some way, we have to be careful that the evangelization we engage in is not into some kind of contaminated water, to use that baptism um, image. The water that we use to baptize people symbolizes both the death and the resurrection of Christ. We are to be baptized into Christ. We must be clear that at the one and the same time, as we were baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his body, the church. There's no gap between the two. We can't be baptized in Christ and not be baptized into the church. So also our evangelization draws us deeper into the love of God and also into love of his body, the church. And while the water of Christ is pure, the water of the church is at times impure and contaminated. It's the human side of that divine institution that the church is. And so it was from the very beginning, just to think of Judas and his betrayal. Then we know how our human weakness very often determines the direction the church takes. The church at times is contaminated by a desire for power and security. And the Lord specifically condemns it in Matthew's Gospel, where he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This Sunday we celebrate the solemnity of Pentecost, which is the time when we remember the gift of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and the church. What is the Holy Spirit? There are a few stock answers. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the creator spirit we find in the book of Genesis and read about it, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But I think if we follow on the Gospels that we read for Pentecost, particularly the one for the Vigil Mass, then we're speaking about a specific kind of Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. I say this because in that Vigil Gospel it says, He, that's Jesus, was speaking of the Spirit which those who believed in him were to receive, for there was no Spirit as yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. To say that there was no spirit just yet means to say that Christ's spirit had not yet passed to his brothers and sisters. They were not yet imbued with that spirit that he had in him. So as Christians, maybe compared to other non-Christian people, we are promised to be imbued not simply with a vague Holy Spirit, but rather with that Holy Spirit of Christ. That Spirit that through him, through his life on earth, we came to be part of. It's that same Holy Spirit that came upon Mary, enabling her to conceive her son. That Spirit that awoke John in the womb of Elizabeth as she jumped when Mary greeted her. And yet there's something different, that characteristic difference for all of us who follow in those footsteps. We come afterwards, and it's through Jesus that we encounter the Spirit. Christ, if you like, is the lens through which we encounter the Holy Spirit. That Spirit is also in some way Christ's soul. It is that thing that life that animated him while he was here on earth and then in giving that his own spirit his own soul to the church Christ gives imbues each one of us with his own self and it seems that not one of us gets exactly the same bit of that spirit some of us are beautiful singers and musicians some are teachers and preachers even if we're not great at it Others are involved in ministry to priests and to the liturgy. More of us are making discoveries every day about who we are, what we're called to be and to do in the church and in the world. So then, as people of faith, we're called to be converted and converted and converted over and over again. That is to say, to be immersed in Christ, which is to be evangelized or gospelified over and over and over again. Our sacramental baptism and sacramental confirmation are not ends in themselves, but rather are beginning points. And like any kind of an inspirational song, we have to tune in all the time and hear that song again and again and again. It is that one true spirit that Jesus promises us. 
It is his spirit. And it's found in scripture, in the sacraments, in the church understood as the gathered people of God, in other people, in people that we minister to and in people that minister to us. The spirit of Christ is real. Perhaps it is the most real experience we will ever have, the most true experience that we will ever have in our life. And Christ's Spirit is with us always. We simply have to open our eyes and ears, reach out and touch other people, to pray, to sing, to be gospelified, evangelized, and converted. Christ's Spirit is that which draws us together into the great ecclesia, the gathering unto Christ that the church actually is.